starting with verse 21. We're going to read about 11 verses through verse 31, and then I'll uh, begin our message in prayer. It says there, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many have heard that verse before? Pretty much all of us. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We establish the law. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture and we honor you for giving us your word. Among the great things you have done for us is revealing your mind. And, and Lord, frankly, we sit in, in a weird spot with that process of you revealing your mind. So often passages like this one are difficult. They're very legal. They're very uh, kind of technical. And Lord, we ask that you would bless us as we go through this morning with an understanding that would be beyond just the technical words and beyond just a, a logical understanding, but that we would be changed by your truth, Lord. Your truth is more than facts on a sheet of paper. Your truth is, is a motivational change. It's a purifier. It is a, it is a transformer of our lives, Lord God. And so we ask for that. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, we're, we're going to start this morning slightly different. Uh, because I need to know where you're at before I move forward into this message. So we're going to take a test, okay? You've probably never taken a test as part of the Sunday morning worship. Is that fair? Nobody's ever given a test to you this morning, okay? And this really is a pass-fail. You, you have the opportunity at the end of this to get in some serious trouble. So uh, you, you, you have the opportunity to raise your hand to let me know whether you're on board with what I'm saying. How many of you know that you are loved by God. Okay, pretty much all of us, right? And, and, and you feel that love. Maybe uh, your head knows you're loved, but hopefully this morning you can even feel you're loved. And frankly, even though this passage sounded very legal, very forensic, very much like one of those courtroom shows on television, it is about love. This passage is about God's love for us. Now, here's the bigger question. And I think these two questions are maybe the most important questions in all of the scriptures, and you need to know the answer. How many of you know that you have sinned? You know you've sinned? All right. You've now given me permission. You've all passed, by the way. But you have given me permission, because what I want to do this morning is kind of... uh, slide by some of what's in this passage. Uh, The whole book of Romans is about justification. And justification by faith, the fact that we believe, and by grace, the fact that God 
acts as the power giver for our salvation. So God provides what we need for salvation, and our job is simply to believe in that. And so next week, Tim is going to go extensively into that, and so I don't want to steal his thunder. So I'm going to miss some of what this passage is talking about this morning. That isn't because I want to hide what the Bible is saying. That's not because I want to somehow avoid some of the truths in this passage. It's just simply because Paul's going to repeat himself over and over and over again. And if I know that you know that you're loved and that you're a sinner, we can kind of pass a couple of the points in this passage. The most famous verse in this section is Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, I'm 34 years old, and I've told you this before, but I think I've been in church pretty much every Sunday of my life, and even when I was a kid and I skipped church because I was sick or something like that, my mom made me watch TV on church, or a church on TV. I had to actually, I wasn't allowed to watch anything else, not movies. I had to watch TV church if I was going to miss our actual Sunday morning service. So I've basically been in church all my life, you know? I mean, pretty much. In fact, one time I ran away from home, and you know where I ran? I ran to church. I actually fell asleep in my dad's office. He was a pastor. I slept underneath his desk. He got up Sunday morning. It was a Saturday night. Got up early Sunday morning and came down, and he, he slid into his desk and kicked me. And he said, what, what happened? Why were you there? And that, that, it's a true, true story. Okay, so I have the permission now to not talk about too much about your sinfulness this morning because you agree and I agree that you are sinful, and you can agree that I'm sinful as well. As I just revealed to you, I actually at least once in my life ran away from home. That had to be sin, right? Okay, so we're going to move on, and we're going to talk about this passage because the interesting thing is that for all those years in church, I didn't recognize this simple verse for what it actually said. For all have sinned and come short of the glory. You know, all my life I've misread that. All my life. And I've had it memorized for as long as I can remember. But but all have sinned and come short of the, and I would like to insert the word, righteousness. God's correctness. God's sinlessness. God's perfection. God's ability to get it right. And that's absolutely true. There's no question. God is those things, and we are short of those things. Sin means that we are short of God's righteousness. But when Paul writes this, he doesn't say we're short of God's righteousness. He says something much bigger. We're short of God's glory. And so with your permission this morning, I want to spend some time talking about what it would look like to experience God's glory. And the beginning of Romans truly asks us to think about this. It says that the, the revelation of God has been revealed not just through the scriptures, not through just the Holy Spirit, but actually through the world around us, all around us. In fact, John Kelvin, the great re- reformer, talked about a couple of different forms of grace. He talked about prevenient grace. Provenient grace, believe it or not, is the stuff that you feel even before you become a Christian. It's the thing that's leading you towards God, and you can find that in nature. You can find that walking along the Schuylkill River and observing the birds or, or, or having a great day with your family. There's all sorts of different places where the grace of God can occur outside of the Scriptures, and frankly, those places might reveal something of the glory of God. So this morning I want to walk you through a few stories, and then a few scriptures that reveal God's glory in my life. And I hope you find it interesting because, in fact, it really is my life. If you find it boring, well, hmm, join Shelby's club, you know. Uh, 
but, but, but the glory of God as experienced by Josh is a little bit what this is about. So maybe this isn't a sermon at all. Maybe this is not a Sunday morning message. Maybe this is a little more of a testimony. I didn't, you know, Tim doesn't ask me to give my testimony when we load up on a Sunday morning worship service and we have these testimonies. You know, we had eight or nine people in a line and you know, everybody gets to go but the pastors. So you know, they gave me a microphone, so here I go. Okay, You'll just have to bear with me now. This past week, I had an interesting experience. I love, I'm a multi-interested person, okay? I just find things too fascinating. Sometimes I wish I could just kind of focus. I'm 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 a person who experiences attention deficit disorder on a macro level. And one of the things I'm interested in is, animals. You know, we'll be driving down the road and, and I'll see a deer and I will stop the car and just, you know, look. We were, I'm interested in, in, in vegetation and things like that. We were going down the road in, in uh, what is that county? Lancaster County yesterday or Friday. What, what day was it, Shelb? We were going down the road and I said, those are tomatoes. And she says, tomatoes? I said, yeah, they're tomatoes. Well, maybe they're beans. They're, all, they're still green. And we're going by at 55 miles an hour. I stop the car, pull into the farm. We look at, I'm like, they are tomatoes, whole big long rows of tomatoes. And they, I, I don't know how they pick those many tomatoes. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of plants. It made Harry's, Harry's garden look pretty small, actually. And, uh, we, you know, I was just fascinated with this stuff. So I'm fascinated with animals, plants, anything. You know, I can just, if you give me binoculars, I, I can just look, you know, forever. But this past week, we had an interesting experience. We went to uh, this reptile show. Now, I love God, and I love his creativity, and that's what this story is about. But sometimes I wonder, okay? This guy comes down, and he tells us that he's the reptile guy, and all these kids are gathered together at Memorial Park in Pottstown underneath the pavilion, and he has all of these bins, and he starts to open up the bins, and first a gecko appears, then a turtle, then an iguana, then then, then then a little snake, and then he pulls out this thing, and he says, this is a python. And, you know, he, he hasn't been letting anybody touch these snakes. And these, I mean, maybe they rub the tail or whatever, but, but he's been keeping, you know, one of them was a snapper turtle. He had a big alligator snapper, just a gigantic turtle. And, he, you know, he didn't want the kids to get too close to those. So, but now he's got a ball python in his hands. And he's holding this thing in his hands, and he's waving it around like me, just, you know, preaching a sermon. And the snake is doing this, and I'm in the front row, and I'm doing this. And, you know, and th- he hands it to a little girl. And now I'm going, I can't believe he's handing that snake to a little girl. And the little girl holds and a couple other people touch it. And then he picks it up and he's waving it around again. And I'm going, ugh. And then he walks by me and literally he just drops it right on my lap. He didn't set it on my lap. He dropped the snake on me. How do you think I felt? You know, and the snake wrapped itself around my right hand and arm, the tail's down here, the head's up here, and it's kind of coiled up in about, I don't know, it felt like about a 250-person army of children just gathered around me, touching the snake. And and one of them picked it up. Sophie actually touched it and held it for a little bit. And I was sitting there, and it, it seemed to be going all right. This snake seemed to be tame. And then all of a sudden, this little boy came up, and, it po- and he poked that snake in the eye. And as it's wrapped around my arm, I felt something that reminded me of the glory of God. Believe it or not, not just the fear of God, the glory of God. Every muscle inside that snake tensed all at once. And and unlike anybody else in in that little display, I was the person who could feel it. 
I could feel every one of those muscles, and I could feel it, and it coiled back, and its head came back to strike, and I grabbed the kids and just kind of pushed, you know, like this, because I thought, this snake has had it. And in fact, I think he had had it. And he sat there, tensed around my, and I could feel. You know, I'm not a very strong person. I'm not trying to tell you I am. But I will tell you that that snake's muscle tenseness, I mean, it was unbelievably strong. And I started to think about this. We're short of the glory of God, right? What, what sort of person could design a being that could do that? You know, just all of itself moving all at once. You know, our bodies are, are amazing bodies, right? We can move our arms and our legs. We can do things. We can drive cars while we, where we've got to push three different pedals at different points and move our hands and change the radio, talk on the cell phone all at the same time, right? Some of you don't do that. Some of us do do that. We shouldn't do that. But, but the truth is that God has designed us. You know, God, the, the beginning of the Bible starts with what? What are the first words? In the beginning, God created. God created. God went to the University of Michigan engineering school, and God learned how the universe worked, and God built a snake, right? No. God knew before anybody knew anything. God understood how this planet was formed, and he understood the rules of science and the laws of science. He formed those as well as the snake that was in our... And I realized that this God is a phenomenal engineer. You know, one of the things that we fall short of as far as the glory of God is his creativity, his ability to design something. Interesting thought, isn't it? Just one way we fall short of the glory of God. We have fallen short in our sinful minds of what God's great glory would be for this place. We haven't done all that we could. Our minds don't work the way they should. And we have fallen short of God's glory. And he is a great, creative, amazing designer. You know, I, I, was, I, I was watching a Discovery Channel program, just one more word on this train. And, and uh, you, know, you know what a giraffe mother does the first time the baby giraffe is born, the first thing that happens to that, that giraffe when it, when it pops out? Somebody saying clean up. Anybody else for a Discovery Channel moment? She kicks it. She kicks it right across the paddock if it's in the zoo or across the Serengeti if they're in Africa. She kicks that giraffe. And the giraffe kind of hobbles up like this and tries to get away from her. And the mother giraffe kicks it and kicks it and kicks it until that baby stands up because she knows that there's lions and hyenas and all sorts of predators in the bush that might eat that giraffe. Can you imagine a God that thought ahead well enough to design an animal that knew that tough love was necessary at the very moment of its baby's birth in order to create this baby's life and to sustain it? He created the mother with an instinct to kick that baby until he, the little baby gets on its feet. Isn't that an amazing thought? I just sit in wonder of these moments. Our God is a creative engineer, a designer that makes us, the smartest of us, look very, very unintelligent. The Bible says that God's wisdom is higher than our wisdom. His knowledge is higher than our knowledge. We can't fathom the depths of God's mind. We are short of his glory, wouldn't you say? All right, second story. A few years ago, uh, I was involved in a mission conference, and uh, we, this mission conference, we, we rented out a barn and a field, and just a huge alfalfa field, hundreds of acres, and we 
we planted these bonfires all over the field. And uh, we had all this going on in the dark. And missionaries, you went, this is true, you went by bonfire by bonfire and you met with a different missionary each time. Okay, so there was a wagon and it would take you to a bonfire and some missionary would share with you their ministry. Sounds kind of funny, but this is the sort of thing you do in rural Michigan, you know. And uh, we moved from bonfire to bonfire and we learned about these missionaries and everything was great. We all went home and the next morning I got a phone call. Somebody had lost their cell phone in one of these uh, patches of alfalfa. Now, this, this field was hundreds of acres, but this guy says, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to look for my cell phone in this grass. I thought, we are never going to find that cell phone. But I was the pastor and I thought, I better go out there. I better befriend this guy. So we went out and I put Sophie and Maggie in the car and we went out and we started to look for the cell phone. And we started at maybe five in the evening. It was October, so it was going to get dark by about 6.30. And uh, we're looking for the cell phone and I'm kicking around in the grass and, you know, in ever widening arcs around this bonfire. You you know, we weren't going to find this thing, right? I mean, I knew we weren't going to find this thing. But Sophie and Maggie are in these little dresses and they, they go out and there's all these flowers all over the alfalfa field, the weeds that had grown up probably the farmer didn't like those too much but uh, there were all these weeds and and they went all over the place they just hundreds of yards out into this field Sophie's in one direction and then Maggie's in another and they're going from this flower patch to that flower patch and they would separate and then they would come back together and they would separate and they'd come back together and periodically they would run back to me and they would show me the these massive uh, kind of piles of flowers I should have brought a basket but I didn't and they would show me these flowers and then they would run back out there and the sun started to set and the cloud cover that had been there when we got there moved away and the sky opened up and it was completely blue and I don't know if you've ever been in an alfalfa field in the fall but you know the 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 moisture comes back into that stuff in the fall and so it's just absolutely vibrant verdant green it's just gorgeous so you have the blue up here and you have the green down there and you have these two little girls out in the field in these you know, light-colored pastel dresses, and they are dancing between flower patches, collecting flowers. And I am looking for a cell phone. Can you feel it? Where's my head? Down, like that. You know, doing this. And at some point I looked up, and because I'm the sort of defensive dad, protective dad that I am, I looked up and I'd say, you know, you're too far out there. And at some point they got too far and they couldn't even hear me saying I was too far. So then I had to look for the cell phone closer to them. But it it occurred to me that I was missing the moment somewhere along the line, that the beauty that God was creating around me was absolutely breathtaking. And I had my mind focused, my eyes focused, looking for something that was about this big, right? And he had the huge sky over top. And he had the green grass, the green grass below. And he had the trees, the tree line. And a couple different times during the time we were there, a deer would pop out of the woods and just kind of walk along a fence line. And, I mean, this was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And it took me probably the better part of an hour to even realize that I was involved in it. We are far short of the glory of God. Wouldn't you agree? When we miss a moment like that, when we have a God who creates beauty on that level. You know, uh, there was this great thinker named G.K. Chesterton a a hundred years ago, 110 years ago, and he said that uh, the worst moment for an atheist is when something good happens to them and they have no one to thank. The worst moment for an atheist is when something good happens to them and they have no one to thank. Maybe the worst moment for a Christian is when they get too focused on the small stuff and miss the beauty of the great stuff and they don't take the time to thank. 
their God. There's a, there's, there's a few different passages of Scripture in the Bible that have to do with this, but Psalm 89, I'm going to just turn there in my Bible. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. I'll read it for you. It says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains. You have founded them. You know, when the Bible says things like this, we have this propensity to just move past it. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. Everything around us, you have founded it, Lord God, the psalmist says. You can picture him up on some valley or up on some hill looking across and seeing the beauty that God had created and realizing that this said something about the character of his or her God. And he realized that this God, this amazing God, was a God of beauty, not just an engineer, an artist. You know, I didn't find that snake in the first story altogether beautiful. And I could admire it in some kind of technical sense. I could feel the strength and realize the coordination that, that, that God had created in that animal. But, you know, it, it didn't strike me as beautiful, right? But this guy with the be- my beautiful daughters well, frolicking across the field and the grass below and the tree line, you know, it was just amazing. I wish the guy with the cell phone would just go away after a while. i got to tell you, I was just like, can you just leave me here with my kids? This is a spiritual moment. The glory of God is all around us, and he shows it in beautiful ways. And one of the things we can miss is the beauty of the living God. Story two. Story three, you're just going to get barraged with these. You, you gave me permission, that test at the beginning, you admitted you're sinners, so now I don't have to convince you you're sinners. I just have to convince you that God is glorious this morning. So you're starting to see the trajectory of this message. I was in uh, Europe in 1995 and 96 over Christmas and New Year's. And uh, I was in this, I was in Utrecht, Holland for a missions conference. And we were setting up this missions conference. I was a team leader on this, on this trip. And it was a great experience for me, a great growth moment, terrifying moment, getting dropped off in Amsterdam. Didn't even have a map, didn't know where to go. 30 kids and me and just had to find a hotel. You know, it was really scary. But, but the, the great moment of this conference was that they invited up to 15,000 people from across Europe who would like to be involved in world missions. 15,000 of them. Have you ever seen 15,000 people in one place? That's like a baseball stadium, right? That's like going to a Phillies game. And there's these 15,000 people, but what's more is they had to put them up in different places. So you had a dining room that could seat 5,000 people. And then you had a girl's sleeping area, just a big cement floor that could sleep 5,000 women, and a men's area right next door, 5,000 men. Uh, And and believe it or not, they only had less than a dozen showers for each of those. 5,000 people in a dozen showers. It was pretty rough. But this great missions conference took place, and all these people came and joined. Now, I want to give you another quote. It's by Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning is a, he's a, Shelby, he's an ex-Catholic monk, isn't he? Among other things, he's kind of a weird guy. Let's just put it that way. He's a spiritual thinker and a Christian writer. And he wrote once that the the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who walk out the doors of the church and acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but not with their lives. Okay, just imagine that. And there's these 15,000 people who gather, many of them sleeping right in this big giant convention center and meeting in this huge giant hall to listen to some of the world's greatest speakers and some of the world's greatest musicians. And they they listened to these sermons and it was just absolutely moving. But in between, I started to get to know these people. You know, when you have the Europeans get together, it's not like a United States missions conference. 
You know, when, when, we, when people from Michigan get together from people, with people from Pennsylvania, there's not a lot of conflict, right? I mean, not so far, at least. Let's just put it that way. You know, Michigan and Penn State will be a tough week. In fact, they don't play this year in football, so we're going to get along this fall. But, uh, but, you know, we don't have huge conflict. I met people from California this past week at annual conference. There's no conflict. We love people from California, people from New Mexico, people from Minnesota, people from Kentucky. Wherever we go, we love those people, right? They're, we're all part of the same country. But that wasn't true when I was in Europe of the country Croatia. There were these Serbians and there were these Croatians and they were in constant conflict. And there was, a, there was a genocide that had been occurring under the domineering reign of a guy by the name of Slobodan Milosevic. Milosevic would eventually be held at the Hague in the Netherlands for war crimes against humanity because he killed literally hundreds of thousands of people, at least allegedly. He died before the sentence could be dropped down and, and given to him. But I was in the presence of these 15,000 people, and one of the missionaries who was leading the conference said to me, look, over there are the Croatians, and look next door, there's some Serbians. And they were sleeping in the very same area of this 5,000-person room. You know, across Europe, these people were killing each other, and there was a massive amount of conflict. There was a huge, giant fight occurring. And here, and where I was staying in Holland, there were th these two group, people groups who had historically hated each other were united under the cause of Christ. You know, one of the things the Bible tells us about our God is that he is a God of unity. He's a God who creates unity, who preserves unity, and in himself is three beings perfectly unified the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in unity. Ephesians 4 talks about this. It says we're members of one faith and one baptism, one church and one hope. And it says we are Christians under one Father, one Son, and one Holy Spirit. And it uses this word one seven times in just two verses or three verses, communicating to us that we are involved in a unified God. You know, I'm not even involved in a unified home. Some days in my home, you would find anything other than God's unity. I don't mean we have these big conflicts. I just mean one kid is hitting another kid with a Lego. And, another, you know, Shelby's wondering why I'm not setting the table for dinner. And I'm wondering why she's not helping me plumb the upstairs bathroom. And, you know, we have this, we have this kind of fractured life about us, right? We have fallen short of the glory of God. He is perfectly unified. And when people listen to him, what's more is they are perfectly unified. Isn't that an amazing thought? God is the unity bringer. And when we fall short of the glory of God, we fall short of him as an engineer. We fall short of him and fail to recognize his beauty. We fall short of him and we fail to be unified with each other. And we have to admit the fact that even our worst enemies are loved equally as much as we are. There is not another person on this planet of any ethnicity that God loves less than me. Let me say that again. There is not another person on this planet whom God loves less than me. You know, I have people that I wishes. I wish he loved less than me. Have you ever had that thought? That's heresy. That's wrong, right? But have you ever, I mean, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic and you say, man, what an idiot. You know what you're actually saying is, God, I wish you didn't love that person quite as much as me because I'm a better driver. That's kind of what you're thinking in your heart, right? We walk around in a disunified state, and our God never does. He is unified. I'm going to fast forward to another brief story, and one of the most moving moments in my life was the moment when Shelby gave birth to Sophie. 
I remember this little baby coming out. It was the, one of the most fearful moments in my life because when Sophie came out, she didn't cry and she, she looked all white and pasty. Something was wrong and they didn't say anything. And I didn't want to let on because I didn't want Shelby to know that maybe this baby was not breathing. And so we looked at that little baby and the doctor seemed to act normal and finally he poked her and then she wailed, you know, and we all broke into smiles. But they cleaned up the little baby, they let Shelby kiss her and then they put that little baby on this warming table. You've seen that? They put the little, little Sophie, she's only about this long, seven, seven pounds, 11 ounces, and she, they put her on this little warming table. And I just sat there and looked. And the nurse looked at me, and I looked at Sophie, and then I looked at her, and then I looked at, Sof- at Shelby, and then I looked back at Sophie, and I just kept looking. And the nurse finally looked at me, and she said, you can, you can touch her. <laughs> you know, I... I felt like it was at one of those car shows, you know, with one of those highly waxed pieces of machinery. And, you know, if you walked up and you touched that person, some guy with a, a billion tattoos and a big beard is going to beat you down, you know. And I just thought, I, there's no way I should be allowed to touch this little creation. I mean, I read this great stat that said that one-third of American fathers, this is, this is a little bit graphic, but one-third of American fathers believe when their first child is born that their wife must have had an affair. And psychology, this is, this, I really read this. I, I'm not saying it's really true. I read it. There's a difference. But psychologists say that that is because when a father looks at his first child, he wonders how he could ever be involved in the creation of something so amazing. I honestly, I, I never questioned Shelby's fidelity, but I did question how in the world I got involved in the creation of such a beautiful little child. And when, when, the, when the nurse looked at me and said, you can touch this baby, I... I, I, I did you see E.T., the movie, you know, where they touch fingers, you know, that moment? Or maybe you've seen the Michelangelo statue at, or the painting fresco on the top of the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, I just, I just kind of touched, and the nurse looked at me like, I don't think I should send this kid home with you, you know? God's glory is amazing. Uh, you, you, you give me water and chemicals and a, a, a lab and all of these different, the, the best science equipment in the world and the rest of the world's lifetime. And I wouldn't be able to create anything as beautiful as my little daughter sitting there on the table. Isn't that true? I am short of the glory of God and I'm short because I was created short. I was never going to be God. Even if there was no sin in my life, I wasn't going to be as smart as God. But I'm short because I can't even sometimes appreciate these moments. God is a gentle, specific designer who cares for his own and he created this little baby perfectly amazingly one last story a few years ago i had the honor of being asked to stay behind one of my own classes where i taught the book of joel of all books a prophetic book from the old testament yes bob a prophetic book from the old testament and this lady stayed behind, and I had talked about forgiveness. And Joel talks at the very end of Joel about forgiveness. And she said, how can I have that forgiveness? And I said, you can believe in Jesus Christ. He has paved the way for you to walk with the Father God. And she said, I would love to believe in that Jesus. And we walked through this process of talking about, and I realized that her mind, unlike so many times when I've shared the faith with somebody, her mind was just drinking it like a glass of water. And she was taking it in and she said, I want that. What do I pray? And I prayed a simple prayer. 
And she prayed that simple prayer with me. And you could just see, the, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that when we come to Christ, we are a new creation. The old things have gone, the new has come. And in Revelation 21, it says that I am making all things new. Jesus says, I am making all things new. We have this scriptural promise that God is making all things new. And I watched in front of me as a woman's face changed. She was old and the old things dropped off, and she became new. I talked to that woman just the other day. She had been left by her husband with a couple of children, one of them special needs. She had a devastating life history. It was terrible. And Habitat for Humanity plus our church in Michigan combined to build her a whole new home, and she just moved into it 10 days ago. She emailed me, and she said, you can't believe how far I've gotten from that moment when I was involved in all these things, and I came to Christ, and here I am today with my own house, my own church family, Truly, the old is gone and the new has come. You know, one of the most amazing experiences about God's glory is watching somebody's life change like that. There's nothing else. If you've never had that experience of leading somebody to Christ, you don't know what you're missing. Watching somebody go from old to new is an experience that will convince you all over again, as surely as watching my daughter take her first breath did, that God is glorious. God is an amazing, majestic creator who saved our lives. And I watched as he did this, and I watched this woman's conscience and her heart and her life get transformed by the glory of God. So we have all sinned, right? We have come short of the glory of God. In short, I hope this morning doesn't mean that you're a lowly worm. It just means that we're really, really, really short of this much glory. That's a lot of glory, right? just got to walk through a couple words. God's righteousness is his rightness. Our righteousness is the ability to walk with God in his rightness. And God tells us that we can walk through life with him being right. And that is what God offers us. And then it says that we have fallen short of this amazing glory, which I've tried to describe for you this morning. But then it gives just a simple word that I need to read for you all over again, because it's a critical word. It's It's found in Romans chapter 3, and you find it in verse 25. It says, Whom God displayed publicly, Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That word is stolen from the Old Testament. You remember the Old Testament had this tabernacle, this temple. And there was at the very center of the temple where people could never go, just the high priest, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And once a year on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, the priest would go in there and he would sprinkle blood on what was called the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. If you've read the Old Testament, you've run across this. If you haven't, you're wondering what I'm talking about because I'm speaking quickly. But this passage tells us, this word for propitiation is the same word as the Old Testament uses to describe the mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. When he sat on the cross or when he hung from the cross and he said, it is finished and his blood was spilled, he offered the way for us to be purified, for us to to be cleansed. In that glory that we're so far short of, he gave us the chance to see. Isn't that an amazing truth? Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. He is our atonement. He is the day of atonement. He is the thing that created the single place where God and human beings could reconnect after years and centuries and a lifetime of failure. I just need to remind you of one other verse. For the the demonstration I say of his righteousness, verse 26, at the present time, so that he would be just 
in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, saying someone is righteous is not a lot of fun. That same writer I talked about, G.K. Chesterton, said once that he, he distrusts cold, hard people. Cold, thin people, he said. How many of you distrust cold, thin people? Do you know the sort I mean? The sort of person that looks at you moralistically and says, your life is not really worth that much. What if God had that tone on his, in his voice or that look in his eye when he looked at us? What if God looked at me with all of that glory and the beautiful creative ability that he has and the unbelievable technical expertise of an engineer that we could all wish we had? What if God looked at us and used all of that glory to just look down at us and say, man, what a mess, you know? Cold, thin, sneering God that he is. Now, The word for just in this passage is the same as righteous, and it says that God is just. He is the righteous, but he is also the righteous bringer, the justifier, the God who makes us able to know him. God's justice is different than just the form that we find on earth. The righteousness around us is the know-it-all form, right? The kid in your class who knew everything and you got sick of him. That's the sort of righteousness we're accustomed to on this planet. But God's righteousness is different. It's not a righteousness that condescends and looks down on us. It's a righteousness that loves and brings us up. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. The gift is that God changed us. God made it possible for us to walk in his righteousness so we could experience his glory. At the end of that, you know what we should say? Amen. Amen, right? Amen. Relate, and I'm going to ask that Shelby not close us in a song. I'm just going to close us in prayer right now, and we're going to literally just say amen to this message. If you signed up for the hospice class, it's to my left and your right in this classroom over here where the money management class was last week, so you'll want to be attending there if you signed up. Join me in prayer and literally just saying to God, thank you for your glory. God, we honestly, in the, in the tradition of so many of the scriptural writers who say this word, we just say amen. Amen to your ability to create beauty, to create life, to create peace, to create unity, to create joy. Lord, you are great and we are not. And we recognize you as the God who does all of these great things and at the very end brings us to a place where we can know you, brings us to a place where we can glorify you. There's no room for boasting at the end of this message. We have to say amen because... Only you are capable of boasting in a situation like this. Everybody in this place has sinned. Everybody has fallen short. And your love has paved the way for us to know you. And so, Lord God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to know you. It is our glory. It's a lesser glory than yours, but it is our glory to walk in your presence. And we're thankful that you have made the way for us to do that. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.